We're studying Romans chapter 6. And tonight we're going to look at verses 9, 10 and 11 of Romans 6. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, there is more, no more distinctive message in the Christian religion than that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead on the third day after his death. There's no more offensive message in the eyes of the unbelieving world that on this planet where one degree of latitude crosses a degree of longitude in calendar time, less than 2,000 years ago, the Lord Christ conquered death and God raised him to life. Now, the truth of this changes every value and every thought, every ambition about the future, every purpose in life. It is little wonder then that the early church was so anxious to speak much to the world of the risen Jesus who had eaten and drunk with them in the six weeks or so that he spent in this world before his ascension after rising from the dead. And here in our text then Paul returns to this theme of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Death is not annihilation. Death is not the end of everything. Death is not ultimate reality. Jesus Christ is God and he was resurrected. As uh, Paul says here, we know that Christ was raised from the dead. We know it, verse 9. He didn't say, uh, as I could say, uh, if this is true, he knew it was so. And he knew it in a unique way because he himself had met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. He'd had a conversation with him. It wasn't a spook. Spooks don't speak. And that is one of the reasons why we believe in the resurrection. Paul and many others then saw the resurrected one. Were invited to touch him and handle him. They ate and drank with him in all different scenes. Early in the morning at the side of Galilee as the cold winds blow and you're not dreaming any longer. On the road to Emmaus in the upper room, 500 people saw him in Galilee and talked about it to everyone who would listen to them for the rest of their lives. They would give their lives for the fact that he rose from the dead. So let us begin, first of all, by reminding ourselves of the resurrection. Not by uh, surveying all the evidences in the Gospels and summarizing them, but just this one account that I've read in your hearing. Um, Mark chapter 16, and the first witnesses, the women, who saw the empty tomb. And the first thing I want to say is, we all know Christ was raised because of the eyewitnesses. 
some of the women, and they were those that helped Jesus and went with him and washed, clothed and cleaned and cooked and served and did all they could for the creature comforts of these uh, 12 men and Jesus who were busy uh, bringing the gospel of the kingdom of God to Galilee. And uh, on the first day of the week then, just as dawn was breaking, after I suppose a sleepless night, they couldn't wait for the first light to shine. And they went to anoint the corpse of Jesus. They were not going there expecting a resurrection. They didn't come from the city to the tomb expecting that uh, the body of their dear teacher, their rabbi, wouldn't be there, in fact. They were bringing about half a hundred weight of spices to complete what Joseph of Arimathea and the other men had done when they put the body of Christ in Joseph's tomb. And as they were going, they started to think of the consequences. Uh, When they got there, there was a huge stone. How would they get behind the stone into the tomb? There would be a slight ramp and there would be a wedge. And um, then they would... um, take the body in and lay it down and they would come out and they would knock the wedge away and the stone would roll down and um, it would be there, firm. It would be a protection against wild animals. It would be a protection against uh, grave robbers because uh, often valuable things of the deceased would be buried with him and it would protect then the the deceased, from having those things removed from him. Mark gives us a little detail as he describes these devout women. Looking up, he says in verse 4, looking up. And he wants us to realize they were disconsolate, broken-spirited women. That they were looking down and walking along there, They had to do something for Jesus. He'd been taken from them. They'd seen what happened. They'd been there. Not close to, but enough to see everything. The horror of it all. The gory, bloodied, slowly dying figure of Jesus there on the central cross. Unimaginable. The brutality of it all. They heard the chanting and the shouting and the mockery. The enduring of the 30 lashes. Had, 39 lashes had worn and torn his flesh. And they'd seen him hanging now by nails that were driven through his hands on the cross. They heard the violence. They felt the hatred that was in the air there. They groaned and grieved and were just broken people. They weren't expecting... A resurrection. So all that happened on this Sunday morning to these women came as an utter shock. There happened to be no problem about removing the massive stone. Because someone had already done that. It was flat on the ground. Mary Magdalene was so overwhelmed at the sight of the eye socket of that dark cave that she ran immediately ran through the streets to the apostles, to Peter and John, and told them that the stone had been removed. 
The other women are there and they creep up to the entrance and they bow down and they peer in and they see a young man sitting down dressed in white and he spoke to them and after he had finished speaking to them and told them what they had to do how they ran through the streets of Jerusalem a group of running middle-aged women when did you ever see such a sight in Aberystwyth? A group of middle-aged women running seriously through Great Darkett Street or Calibiate Street. You know that none of them, even when they saw the stone rolled away, turned and said, well, it was true after all. And when they came and hammered on the door and Peter and John came to the door and they told them, the news. Peter and John didn't say. Well I never. Blow me down. Just as he said. No hint. Of any such response. They'd heard the words of Jesus. On a number of occasions. This phrase he repeated it. And the third day. He told them that. He told them about the sign of Jonah. That he would give them. And he gives the, that actual chronological reference. So not in the distant future he would come back. But on the third day he would rise. There were the promises of Jesus and the prophecies of Jesus about his suffering and his death. Totally true. They never seem to have registered in the minds of the disciples. They were actually ignored because the twelve were thinking as men think who lack any intimate personal knowledge of Jehovah God. And people who don't know God then for them it's just unthinkable. It is impossible that someone could literally rise from the dead. Jesus must have been speaking in figures or symbols. Just suppose that in writing his gospel, Mark, in order to bolster the church in about 15 years' time when he started to write his gospel, he dreamed up then a story of Jesus risen from the dead. How would he, how would he go about doing that then, to be really persuasive? Well, not this way. Not this story of country bumpkins women going to anoint a body that they had no way of reaching because it was protected by a great stone. What sort of people are these simpletons? Indeed, if we were inventing a story of Jesus being raised from the dead, we wouldn't write about women at all. Because uh, in the first century, then women had a second-class status. They were not allowed to give evidence in courts of law in the ancient world. The resurrection of Jesus was utterly unexpected. They were completely taken by surprise. Mark is honestly telling us of the sheer strength of the ignorance and the the disbelief that dominated the hearts of this group of women. Those who loved him. The most, were the, they were the nearest and dearest to him.
And he tells us that their response when they see the stone is gone and the tomb is empty was not joy unspeakable, but they were scared stiff. Half light of early morning, going where the dead bodies are, finding an empty tomb, and an unearthly figure dressed in white inside it, they had goose pimples. They may have been also afraid of what men would say about their story, Peter and John and the others. What were you thinking of? Going down to the tomb where those soldiers are? You know what soldiers are like, where the danger is, and now telling us this fantasy. They were all in uncharted territory, out of their depth, unable to handle things. Now, the only credible explanation of this event is that the living God had done something. Do you think it's incredible that God should raise the dead? It was a supernatural occurrence because this is God's world. And because it's God's will, then he's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask. It's not a demonic act. It wasn't an elaborate hoax. The creator who made man from the dust of the earth and breathed into that inanimate dust and made it live and look into the face of its creator, that he did something again here. And this figure... Dressed in white, who so overwhelmed them, that made them alarmed. It's the same word translated distressed in Mark 14.33 of Jesus in Gethsemane. It's a, a deeply physical, emotional gut response that engulfs and paralyzes. They were in the presence of a messenger of God. It's one of God's ministering spirits. And in the form of a young man. So it's just inexplicable unless you are aware of God and that this is a supernatural world that we live in. Angels, you know, are messengers of God. Uh, they have no gender, but when they appear, they appear as male. They can take on human form and then are indistinguishable from men. No big white wings at all. And they have male Names. We just know the names of two of them, Gabriel and Michael. And they're charged then by God to help, to assist, to minister to us, the people of God. And much of their work is shrouded in mystery. God hasn't told us very much about angels. You know, if he told us a lot, we would, we would be forming societies and we would be speaking of angels and claiming that we heard the rustling of their wings and that they were present and helping us and so on. But he wants us to think of his son and commune with him and talk to him as the eternal, divine, omnipotent one. So this angel spoke and he addressed their fears. Isn't that interesting? That the angels are like their master, touched by the feeling of our infirmities. And he saw how utterly heartbroken and distressed they were, and how fearful they were. And he speaks to them. Don't be alarmed, he says. You're looking 
for Jesus of Nazareth. And of course, that's exactly it. That's who they were looking for. They weren't looking for the Son of God. They weren't looking for the resurrected Lord of glory, triumphant over death. They were looking for Jesus of Nazareth, the man who had breathed his last a few days earlier, whose body had been carried to the spot and was buried here in this very tomb where the conversation was going on. The women were there to look for the body and anoint it properly in case men hadn't done such a a job which women can do so much better. And then the, uh, the messenger of God adds famous words that we, we quote, and it's a part of uh, our chanting and, and uh, delight in saying them to one another. He has risen, he is not here. And that's the claim that Christians make, and the apostles then, they make it in this letter and in our text to show the significance of this truth. He's not here. He's not a dead body. His dust isn't somewhere under the Galilean sky tonight, somewhere. He's risen, he says. People know where the patriarch's tombs are and where Mohammed's tomb is. Jesus doesn't have a tomb because he's, he's not dead. So the dead body of Jesus Christ had come to life. And you say, well, is, there possi- is it possible that there's some other more rational explanation of what happened that first day of the week? Is it possible, for example, that the women could simply have gone to the wrong tomb? And you've got this figure in white speaking to them from this tomb, saying that Jesus was risen. And why in the world would they get something as significant as this wrong? It was a well-known building development. Like people look in Aberystwyth, you see down the street here now, the building, they've done such a good job in it, and we're interested in that, and all the building. We're looking at the, uh, at the bandstand, the new bandstand going up on the promenade, and here was a prominent figure, uh, an employer, in Jerusalem, Joseph of Arimathea, and what's happening down there? Oh, he's, he's building his tomb already, his sepulcher. It's going on. Oh, well, they all knew about that. And if they'd gone to the wrong tomb and jumped to the wrong conclusion, it would be a simple thing for the authorities to go to the right tomb and bring out the body. You know, uh, even if uh, they had a lapse of memory as to the whereabouts of the tomb, and we, we all have lapses of memory as we get older, it would have been a simple thing to rectify. The chief priests would hear the rumors, you know, they are saying that uh, he's risen from the dead now, right? Bring the body out. You know what it is. Bring it out and show the body to the people. They'd have gone to the right tomb. The Romans, the Jewish leaders, and they would have pointed out, look, you silly people, these women, they went to the wrong tomb. Resurrection, it's a cock and bull story. Or you think then um, of the possibility of another explanation. It's the, called the swoon theory. And it came out uh, in a new form by a man called Hugh Scone, 
field in the Passover plot. And the swoon theory says he didn't die. There was a little patter of heartbeat and there was a little flicker of electrical activity in his brain and then he who had been so brutalized and hung on a cross for hours and had a spear stuck deep into his stomach that in the cool of the uh, Saturday night he came to. He recovered out of the out of the swoon and somehow he was able to sort of lever the stone back and push push the stone up and onto its side and to walk past the guards and gain such vitality that he could walk the road to Emmaus then. Five, six miles and speak as animatedly to the men, preach to them and they had no thoughts other than this stranger knew the Bible very well. And when they saw him, he persuaded them that he was the conqueror of death. This was no feeble man recovering from such a terrible experience. Well, really, comparing that to the straightforward accounts here of the women coming, and the appearances of Jesus, the six weeks, in all sorts of circumstances, what's what is more credible? Or what again about the stolen body theory? Grave robbers, well, what would they do with a, a body two or three days dead and already beginning to stink? And the Jewish authorities, did they steal the body? Well, what would they want to steal the body for? They wanted every hint that he had risen from the dead to be expunged from people's minds. And the Roman authorities didn't want it. They'd put, they'd put soldiers there. A, a quaternion of soldiers were guarding it to make sure that no one ever tried to remove his body. All they'd have to do would be, when the rumors that Jesus had written, when they began to spread, then uh, all they needed to do was to produce the body of Jesus Christ. So what's taken place on the third day after Jesus died was what he predicted, what was prophesied, and what we are prepared for by the resurrection of the boys in the um, Old Testament at the time of Elijah and Elisha and what Jesus did in raising Lazarus and widow of Nain's son and Jairus' daughter and what um, David says in the Psalms that God won't let someone as precious to him as his beloved son see putrefaction. And Job says, I know that my Redeemer liveth. The worms destroy my body, yet I shall see him. My eyes shall see him. And God does it. That's the message of the angel. God has stepped in here. The power of God is at work. Don't think it's strange that God can raise the dead. And so here we have the challenge of Christianity to all post-enlightenment thinking. It says to us, with God all things are possible. Dead bodies can rise by the supernatural power of God. So this window is opened just though there in those first dozen verses of Mark chapter 16 we see the perspective that these women had of what happened to them. 
And then you can read Matthew's final chapter and you can read John's last two chapters and uh, Luke's two chapters for fuller accounts and what Paul experienced and what he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We know. We know that Christ is risen from the dead. The second thing I want you to see is that death has no mastery over Jesus and so not over us. Where is Jesus now? Well, the death he died, verse 10, the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Jesus is now living to God. You know how John opens his gospel. You know that? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God and the word was God it was with God it was towards God in the beginning they were there father and son in divine love and affection delight in one another with the spirit that's where Jesus was and now he is towards God again we're told he died to sin once he lives to God that's his life Our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever because he's at the right hand of God with all authority in heaven and earth and so he can enable us to live to God. So the implications of that mean that uh, we have a life-changing and a life-giving hope. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you trust in him, then you have a hope. Nobody can touch and nobody can take away from you because it's unfading and it's imperishable and it's undefiled. Our final healing lies before us and that healing will be a body like his body. A real body, but oh, perfect and glorified, transfigured. Listen, I tell you a mystery We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brethren, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That's how Paul takes it. The doubts about the resurrection. The Greek thinking in Corinth about what matters is your soul, not your body. And Paul says, no, no. He was raised from the dead. You will be raised from the dead. At the great general resurrection, you will see your loved ones in Christ again. But not as they are now, weak and feeble having all sorts of problems and illnesses, but all transfigured, 
made unto his likeness. So you understand that it's not that you are to say, well, it's been hard the last weeks, and I'd like things to get a little easier. Um, It's been bad the last weeks, but I'd like things to be better. It's not that. It is that the regeneration of all things in heaven and earth is going to come. It's promised. It must come. Because of the resurrection. Because I live, you shall live also. I've come that you might have abundant life. That's our hope. Not if things are hard, I want them to be easier. If things are bad, I want them to be better. Not that. Much more than that. A final healing is going to come. And will not tarry with the last trumpet and the appearing of the Savior from heaven and the resurrection of the dead and our bodies that were sown in dishonor. Oh, you want to put them in a box and screw it down because it's death soon is dishonorable. And the body that was sown in weakness, ah, it's going to be raised in strength and in glory that we can live with him forevermore. So we're talking about this week now, and uh, the fears you have and the concerns you have about this month and the rest of this year. And I'm saying that the life of Christ is going to be such a help to you. That you've only survived until this evening in March in 2015 because a living Savior has been with you. In you, around you, before you, above you, underneath you, alongside you, every preposition in relationship to you. This Savior has been and he will be in the future. The living Christ is going to strengthen you. All right, let me give you an illustration of this then and refresh you for a moment. A couple of years ago, John Piper, the famous American preacher, was invited to be one of the speakers at the great student week in Texas. This conference then is um, always Easter week. And American students call it Res Week. And over 5,000 Christian students gather each year to hear the word preached. It's a time of encouragement for believers and outreach to those who are not yet Christians. When I was a student in America 50 years ago, it was always held as a very similar conference in Urbana. And Billy Graham was always the keynote speaker. But uh, this time, John Piper worthily filled that role. So he was invited to speak at the culminating service at the end of Easter week on the Friday night. And he chose to speak on this theme, the power of the resurrection. And as he stood on the platform then, the students went in their scores to the front and they all, with their telephones and with their cameras, they took photographs of him and then they went back to the seats And he said, turn, please, to 1 Corinthians 15. And he read the passage. And then he looked at them. 
And he said, I need to tell you something. My wife and I met for lunch yesterday, which is our habit every Thursday. I've been praying for some time about a very important subject that I wanted to talk with my wife about, a weighty subject. We had that conversation, and I need to tell you, it went very badly. My wife and I have hardly spoken a word since yesterday at lunch. tried to speak yesterday afternoon, but all I wanted to do was cry. We always pray on our knees. I read from a devotional at night, and, and then we prayed, as we do every night. Noel first, and then me. And I was able to read, and we were able to pray, but we really couldn't even speak to one another last night. And when I left this morning to come here to Texas, I didn't have the opportunity to speak. I had to get to the airport and go to the plane and fly there. I kissed her on the cheek and I said, Noel, this is my problem. We'll talk about it when I get back. And I got on the plane and I haven't spoken to her since. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because, first of all, I don't want you to think too highly of any man. You have all these famous preachers flying in on planes to preach you this week. You remember, they are all sinners. They need the gospel too. Secondly, I want you to know that I need the power of the resurrection every bit as much as you do. And thirdly, I want you to know, because I know some of you are coming here today guilty and struggling with sexual sin and all kinds of discouragements, I want you to know that all of you need the power of the resurrection as well. I think if you Google John Piper Reswick, Texas A&M, you might see the audio of this and, and listen to him saying what he said. Well, for the rest of Piper's talk, then all you could hear was the rustle of 5,000 Bibles being turned as they quietly and earnestly listened to him. They were locked in to what he had to tell them. Why do I tell you this story then? Well, because some of you here tonight you think if only you could be a better Christian, that you wouldn't have the problems that you have now at university or in your family or with your friends or with your parents or on the job or whatever it is. Your hope is if only you could be a better Christian, then things would get better. I want to change your focus. If that's where you are today, just thinking, if I could turn over a new leaf or have more resolu resolution and determination to be better, then things would get better. You are being a stranger to the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
It's just one place only that the Christian has hope in. And it's not things are hard now and they're going to get easier. Things are bad now, but they're going to get better. Problems that weigh us down tonight will go one day. This soon will pass. That's not where we get our hope from. It is from knowing the power that raised Jesus from the dead is power that works in every Christian. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And that's our longing afterwards. I can do all things through the living Christ who strengthens me. He's with me. Before, beneath, alongside me in the future as he's been in the past until tonight. You're looking for strength in the wrong place. You've got to look, as Paul says here in this chapter, you've got to look to the Christ who doesn't die anymore, but he lives. And now he's not located in Galilee or in Jerusalem, but he's everywhere. He never leaves you. You face the future with Christ, triumphant in majesty, conqueror of death. And in this life, Christ lives with God and to God. And he helps us to live with God and to live to God. And so we roll out before him the heartaches and the troubles and the fears we have about the future. And we roll it all out and say, I I can't face this without you. You're going to keep me. And I put my hand in his and I walk into the future with the living Christ. We're being ministered tonight by him. His promise where we gather in his name. He's there and he comes and he's got this message for you tonight. And some part of it is particularly suited to you and to you and to you and to me. Because in the end it's not the good things in the future or the bad things in the future. The good that's going to cheer us up and the bad things in the future that's going to oh, distress us. That's That's... Not what it's all about. It's all about my Savior, my Lord, my loving God, and and me. His help made perfect in my just enormous dependence on him. That without him I can do nothing at all. So some of you who are hoping for better times should be really hoping For a better appropriation of Jesus Christ. To have him and to experience his love and his power and his strength. You know there are people in this congregation and they look at some of you. And they say, oh, if only my life was as happy as their life. If only I had the things that they have. If my marriage was as good as as their marriage is. If my work was as satisfying and that I had the... 10 out of 10 job satisfaction that they have. Oh, I'd be such a happy person. Now, I know most of you very well. I've been with you for, for many, many years now. You've opened up to me and you've told me about your, your trials and your falls and how sad you are about how you have lived and the temptations that you meet with. And I smile to myself when other people look at you and they say, oh, I'd like to be a Christian like him. I'd like to be a Christian like that husband and wife, like that woman is. Life would be terrific if that were the case. 
And they have no idea about the secret burdens you have and the struggles that you go through and how at times your heart breaks too when you wonder, am I a Christian to be like this? The last thing I want to say to you is that uh, Christians now, you are to count yourself dead to sin but alive to God. And that's how he concludes this passage, isn't he? These three verses that I've read to you, that's what he says. Verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. All right, and there are familiar uh, illustrations of this um, in all the more homiletical commentaries on Romans, like the lovely commentary that uh, Stuart Olliot has given, and so on. So here's Jamaica, all right, and it's a terrible place for tens of thousands of slaves. But emancipation comes, and they're free. They're all freed. But it's hard. It's hard to accept your freedom. And when this slave then meets his old master in town or on a country lane, then he he feels like a slave. He bows his head to him, and he calls him Masser, and he tells of his fears and he's totally servile and he goes home cross with himself and he tells his wife do you know I saw I saw the boss and uh, oh I was hopeless I, I couldn't look him in the eye I had to look down she says Josh you are a free man you reckon on that he's got no control of you any longer you don't belong to him you're not servile to him He's got no control. Count yourself free. So this word then, count yourself, it means consider yourself or keep constantly before you in your mind, here at the front of your mind, not back here somewhere, but there, this truth about yourself, that you have been delivered from your old self. To a new state, a new state in union and communion with the conqueror of death, the king of the universe, your shepherd and your guardian, your friend, your husband, your lover, your prophet and priest and king, you're all in all. So this word then, it's translated, you know, authorization, reckon on it, bring it into your reckoning. Consider that this is so, regard this to be the case. Look upon it as such. Count it to be so. That's what you've got to do. Uh, This is not whistling in the dark. I mean, it's not make-believe. It's not repeating something to yourself to try and persuade yourself that something is true that isn't true at all. We are not to pretend that our old man was crucified with Christ. There's no pretense about it. The old, unregenerate, unbelieving rebel that you once were is no more. He is dead and he is buried. And you can never become again what you once were. You are now a new man and only one new man in Christ. The old life has ended forever. The score has been settled. The debt has all been cleared. And the law against you 
has been totally satisfied by the sentence that was passed on the Lord Jesus. You think of a, a married woman who is tempted to behave as, as if she were a single bimbo. And she goes out to the pub by herself and she chats up various men there. Let her remember who she is. Let her keep her wedding ring on and think and speak warmly of her husband and her debt to him and her children. You consider a, a, a newborn Christian living now as if he were an unbeliever. I know a minister. And he started to go to chat rooms on the web. And then he got engaged to a woman there who talked to him and wrote to him and he wrote back to her. And back and forth they wrote, you know, he was doing business on the web. He was talking to her. And finally he went to Manchester to meet her and he met her and the inevitable happened. And a month or two later he stood in a line of people at the booking office of the local railway station. He knew that uh, a few people behind him in the same queue going to buy some tickets were members of his own church. And so he went and he said... uh, a uh, ticket to Manchester, please. Single or return, the booking clerk said. Single, he said. He was not reckoning on a wife. He was not reckoning on children. He was not reckoning on his vocation, his congregation. He wasn't reckoning on the fact that he had died to the dominion of hunches and feelings and infatuations and lust. He was living now with Christ, the living Christ, the risen Christ, whose smile is worth ten million smiles from those you love the most in this world. I'm not saying you should count yourself as no longer having any sin. You know that, don't you realize? I'm not saying that to you. It's not true. You have to deal with the flesh. It's not been eradicated. It will not be until you are with Christ in glory. Sin is a force in you. And you ought to beware of its power and its subtlety. I'm saying every Christian has to deal with the flesh and deals with, Lord, help me now. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against you? Lord, be with me now. I'm not commanding you now tonight. I want you to to die to sin. I'm saying that when Christ died, you died in Christ to sin, to its dominion, its lordship over you. And I'm not saying to you tonight that the secret of the Christian life is in the reckoning. The claiming of this Christ by an act of determination. 
as if it was almost a psychological and physical effort on your part to say, I will reckon, I will reckon, I will reckon myself to be dead to sin and alive to Christ. Dead to sin, alive to Christ. Dead to sin and alive to Christ. And I say to myself over and over again, your victory over the dominion of sin is not achieved by you and by your efforts It was achieved by the Son of God in his death and resurrection. And you simply appropriate it by trust. You say, here I am again, Lord. I've had an argument with my wife and we haven't spoken to one another. I had to tell her some things and there's just a cold and a chill and I need you to get me and take me and help me and help her. And you appropriate this loving Savior was with you your effort and your striving but your trusting in him so the the major secret to living a Christian life is in the mind it's in the values that you have it's in the convictions that you've been taught from the word of God it's by the truths that I teach you and that God gives us in scripture and we are never to forget them and we are to think about them and to repeat and refresh your mind about them I want you to consider the consequences of them in the days to come for you to go back to the old swinger you used to be that's unthinkable That's gone, that life. It's gone, it's over. It's as unthinkable as a little, as a a man uh, who, who tries to act like a little boy and behave like a little boy, petulant and wanting his own way. That's not maturity, that's not development. And you, this new man who lives with Christ, and to God day by day. You wouldn't want to be a discharged prisoner knocking on the doors of a jail and saying, let me in, I want to come back here to live my life. You'd think, poor clods of the earth, that we should think like that. We've died. We're risen. We live with Christ. So be steadfast and unmovable and abounding in the work of the Lord. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let's pray together. We ask the Lord to help us when tensions and troubles come into our lives. That the great truths of what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. In conquering death. And that he dies no more. And because he lives, we shall live also. And not by ourselves, but live with you. I'll never leave you. Live with you living in us and our illimitable access to you to keep us and help us day by day. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for these things. And we pray that uh, we'll, we'll be better in trusting and better in serving you tonight and all our days. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen.